0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the week of March 13th, 2009. I'm Steve Mirsky, and I'm just back from 11 days at sea on a Scientific American lecture cruise with Insight Cruises. Because this is Darwin's big anniversary year, the cruise featured a faculty of evolutionary biologists as well as cognitive scientists who we'll hear from in future episodes. This week, though, we talked to Jerry Coyne, who gave a series of lectures on the ship. He's professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Chicago and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Why Evolution is True. We spoke on March 8th in his stateroom on the Holland America ship, the Dam. In the last chapter of your book, you tell this story at the beginning where you've, you've just spoken to a group of businessmen and one of them comes up to you afterwards and says, I thought you made a very convincing argument, all your evidence for evolution,
1: but I still don't accept it. No, what he said really was, "I'm not convinced." So, yeah, I mean, my reaction to that, of course, was uh, somewhat this of being. I mean, I was somewhat dismayed because I'd done all this effort to give the evidence to these people, and this guy said, "You know, I don't." accept it even though it was right there before his eyes but you know it's sort of understandable if people have a religious predilection that's really really strong not to believe in it then they're not going to no matter how much evidence they see so so given that
0: why did you write this book
1: well i didn't write it for those kind of people i wrote it for i mean because a lot of people are open-minded including religious people i mean not everybody adheres to a literalistic interpretation of the bible so you know during my career i found that a number of people are on the fence, um, willing to be convinced if they see the evidence. And that's sort of who the people for. It's also for the large number of scientists that sort of accept evolution because it's the going thing in the field but don't really know what the evidence is. And Even a lot of evolutionary biologists, in fact, have never read on the origin of species or know, you know, all the lines of evidence for evolution. And there
0: are, of course many lines of evidence that Darwin didn't have a clue about when he wrote Origin of Species.
1: Right. Um Like the fossil record, for one thing, he knew that if it was good, it would document evolution, but they had a crappy fossil record at that time. Um That's one of the new lines of evidence, more or less, and also the molecular biology, finding, the ex- for example, dead genes and pseudogenes in species where they were active in an ancestor and a relative that are dead, like our gene for making vitamin C, that's also new development, so... There's been a number of new lines of evidence, all of which just support the sort of propositions that Darwin laid out 150 years ago.
0: The dead gene thing is really interesting. Why don't you just take another minute or two and and explain that in a little more detail?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, in a lot of organisms, including ourselves, in the DNA in our genome, there are genes called pseudogenes, which are genes that aren't active. We can tell they're not active because the coding sequence of the gene is interrupted by some thing that prevents it from making its product or protein, or there'll be a mistake in the switch that would turn it on or off. And you can see directly whether a gene is active by seeing whether it makes the RNA product, which leads to the production of a protein. So what we found from sequencing the DNA of ourselves and other species is that Virtually every organism is loaded with pseudogenes. Um, the most famous one in our species is the gene for making vitamin C. And we have the complete pathway, but the last step, the gene involved in the last step of the process is broken. It's dead because there's a part of the DNA sequence which has actually been removed or has been snipped out. Um, and yet the gene is active in a lot of our relatives. Um who use it to make vitamin c presumably humans don't need to do that because we have plenty of vitamin c in our diet and so the pathway was superfluous and we just it just sort of became inactivated by random mutation so um that's just one example of these pseudogenes. genes but every organism has them the platypus which has no stomach um has genes for producing stomach enzymes which are broken and the only thing you can conclude is that its ancestors had stomachs which you can get from other molecular evidence or from fossil evidence and Platypus lacking a stomach simply, you know, kept the genetic information, but it became inactivated. So there's no other way to explain this unless you think the creator was some kind of prankster that would put inactive genes indicating evolution in creatures, except to say that creatures have genes um, descended from common ancestors.
0: And the the genes become inactive because there's no longer any selection pressure to keep them around.
1: Yeah, that's one reason. Simply, you know, mutations are always happening. Usually they're weeded out because they have lethal or deleterious effects. But in a dead gene, a gene that's no longer useful – sorry, in a gene that's no longer useful for the organism um, – a mutation that activates it is of no consequence. Or sometimes it's actually useful to get rid of genes that you don't need anymore. So natural selection can actually inactivate genes, such as those for making eyes and cave animals or or wings and birds that don't need to fly, like on islands.
0: Because then they can uh, save a lot of metabolic resources. Yeah,
1: flight is a tremendously expensive and by expensive, I mean, you know, if you could get rid of it, you could probably have a lot more offspring. And so birds that tend to live in areas without predators over millions of years tend to lose their wings because they don't need to fly. You tell a great story in the book. There's there's uh, evidence that people might be familiar with, or at least
0: the kinds of evidence that they've seen before. Uh, but there was something in the book about using coral reefs to gauge the length of the day or the number of days in the year mm-hmm. that I'd never seen before that was really fascinating and and kind of beautiful and elegant you want to talk about that yeah, a little
1: briefly I'm not sure I can recall the details but the fact is that due to the motion of the tides the earth's rotation has been slowing down over time so a day used to be um a lot uh, shorter than it is now, but as the time it takes, the day is the time it takes the earth to go around and it's access once. So if it's been slowing down, then days are getting longer over time. Um, which means that a year would comp- would which is the which is the time that takes the Earth to go around the Sun once, which doesn't change, and um, will consist of more more days in the past than it does now. So we can actually calculate from the rate of, rate of tidal friction how fast the Earth is slowing down. Make calculations of that, and then you can use it to predict how long days were in the past. And there's another way to check that out too. And this is what Jonathan Wells did at Cornell. It's a really elegant experiment. Um, he looked at fossil corals in which they deposit both um, daily and annual growth rings, and you can tell by looking at how many daily rings separate an annual ring, how many days there were in a year. And they lived, I believe, about 400 million years ago in the Devonians. So he calculated that... um that back in that time, a day would have to be about 22 hours long instead of 24. And then when he looked at the growth rings of the corals and calculated how long a day would have to be to make that many growth rings for a year, it was 21.9 hours. So it was bingo right on the money. So that's, you know, a good way of not only dating organisms, but showing that, A, that the earth is really old, B, it's been slowing down over time, and see these corals lived a long time ago. So. It's a beautiful piece of work. Yeah, there. it really was. It's quite elegant and it's not very well known. I'm surprised that it isn't, so. Uh, this is Jonathan Wells at Cornell. Isn't there a Jonathan Wells at the Discovery Institute? The one at the Discovery Institute we won't talk about, so. He's just a straight intelligent design creationism. So it's not the same Jonathan no, no, Wells, no, no, okay. Well, this is many years ago. I think it was in the sixties that the guy at Cornell did the experiment. So. Uh,
0: another, another thing you have in the book is, the example that uh, the intelligent design people try to trot out about the clotting factors and how there's no way that we could have a, uh, a cascade of clotting factors that would be part of our current uh, uh, setup of clotting factors and have it work mm-hmm. and it's kind of good that the Discovery Institute people, the intelligent design people, set up these challenges because then the evolutionary biologists know where to look for some interesting new piece of data Mm -hmm. and seem to always be able to find it pretty quickly.
1: That's because (laughs) things evolved. I mean, yeah, that was in fact, you know, the stuff about blood clotting and and the flagellum were pretty much in the literature before the Discovery Institute it's just that people didn't think to to look at them as evidence for, you know to refute creationists who said that this couldn't have evolved so that was part of the decisive evidence is dover at uh, dover as you well know that uh, i Im- mean the evolution of the immune system and the blood clotting system um huge stacks of literature were placed on the witness stand in front of michael behe to show him that there was all this speculation so you yeah, know the blood clotting system is a good one because it's very complex and it's creationists assert that it could not have evolved in a darwinian stepwise fashion but you know we now have a pretty good speculative scenario about how that happened and we've been able to find some of the proteins having other functions in other organisms like um, sea cucumbers so it's clear that like in any other complex biochemical pathway blood clotting has been sort of jerry-rigged from proteins appropriated from various biochemical pathways in our ancestors
0: what was the most interesting new thing that you learned while you were writing the book
1: I suppose... Well, two things, I guess. The fossil evidence, which I sort of knew vaguely of, but as a working evolutionist, you don't spend your time reading, you know, elementary disquisitions on where whales came from. But really looking at it, especially the new stuff on the origin of birds and whales, was quite fascinating, and just to see it all fit into place. Also the molecular stuff, the evolution of pseudogenes, is something I didn't know much about. And that's all coming in retroviruses that we share the same insertion points in our chromosomes as apes of these now-dead viruses. That's all pretty fascinating stuff, so. Yeah, I just saw Ken Miller give a
0: talk in which he talked about the the beta-globin pseudogene that we share with chimps and gorillas as a pseudogene. Mm-hmm. So it's inactive in all three species, which means that the common ancestor had it inactivated a long, long time ago. That's
1: right. That's uh one of the things I didn't mention in the pseudogene evidence, is not just that we harbor these dead genes, but that the sequence of these dead genes, that don't make anything, they're just wrecks in the DNA, is more similar between us and chimps than it, than it is between us and gorillas or between us and gibbons. And, you know, how do you get this pattern of ancestry of something that doesn't do anything unless it's been inherited in an inactive form from a common ancestor? So. There's lots of evidence along those lines. What do you actually do as a working evolutionary biologist when you're not writing
0: books for a general audience?
1: Yeah, well, my day job is I uh, studying the origin of species in Drosophila, which, as I talk about in the book, is an area that Darwin didn't make a lot of progress in. So, um, you know... Most of the progress in that area has been made since the 1940s, with Er starting with Ernst Meyer and Theodosius Dobzhansky. So my particular interest is in the genetic changes that accompany the origin of new species. What kinds of genes change? How many changes are there? Does it take a lot of genetic change to make a new species or a little? Are there particular genes that are involved over and over again in this process? And which kinds of reproductive barriers are the most likely to evolve when a new species forms?
0: And of course, the fruit fly seems like it was almost made for evolutionary biologists to work on.
1: Yeah, it uh, has short generation time, in my case, uh, 10 days from egg to egg. Um, they're easy to rear in media that you can cook up in the basement. Um, they have a lot of characters that you can study, and you can cross them together in the laboratory, at least a lot of species, even species that live together in nature without crossing, can you can do it in the laboratory, which is a prerequisite for genetic analysis. So it's an ideal organism to study speciation. And the problem is, can we extrapolate what we find in fruit flies to other species like mammals and, and uh Hominins, things like that. So that way, it's harder to do crosses amongst the great apes than it is amongst Drosophila. So right, uh, who has the time for it? Yeah, or the ethical allowance to do that. So
0: something I always ask fruit fly geneticists, fruit fly evolutionary biologists: Can you trace your lineage directly to Morgan in terms of your uh, your mentor and his mentor and her mentor or whatever it
1: is? Oh yeah, easy. It's just three steps. You you must know there's a computer. Program that does this now. <laughs> so I'm uh, out of Lewinton, who was a student of Theodosius Dubchansky, who was a student of Thomas Hunt Morgan. So I'm three steps removed from the great man. So you're
0: uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan's scientific great grandson. That's right. <laughs> and proud of it. I just want to give you a little flavor of what it's like to attend science lectures on a cruise ship in the midst of an otherwise academic setting can come. Interesting interruptions, not to mention seasickness. Here's University of California, Berkeley cognitive scientist Tom Griffiths trying to talk about artificial intelligence on a day when the weather started getting rough and the rather huge ship was tossed.
2: So what you do is you take this matrix, you sum, uh, this way, so you work out the frequency of those items, and then you divide the entries by the frequency just like we were doing for the link matrix to do the, to do Patrick right?
3: Good morning, everyone. This is Shane, your crew speaking, and I hope you're enjoying this morning at sea. It's a nice day for you to just relax and enjoy this beautiful ship. Of course, we have the best crew on the high seas to take care of you today. Anywhere you go throughout the ship, whether you head to the Lido restaurant today, our dining room, or into your stateroom steward. Uh, interact with one of our entertainment team, or our fabulous beverage team, or our friendly front office team. You'll note how friendly they are and never intrusive to you. And they're what sets the Zanderdam apart. They're an amazing crew. I'm very proud of them. So today, I'm going to give you a brief rundown of some of the events happening around the ship this morning. I think you'll find there's a nice variety of activities happening throughout the morning. This morning, fun session of Bingo starts. This one's called Win a Cruise Bingo. The cards are on sale at 11 a.m. And the game starts at 11.15 today. This is your chance to win your next cruise vacation on the Bubba Gump Shirt Boat. Now I'm just kidding, of course. It's on Holland America Line. It all starts in the Vista Lounge at 11 a.m. today. You can win your next cruise, so take a look at it. And at 11 a.m., it's another fun cooking demonstration sponsored by Food & Wine Magazine. This one's delicious hors d'oeuvres with our chef, Troy, and also our party planner, Kelly. takes place in our culinary arts center. That's up on deck number 2 midship. And there's a lot happening today in the Greenhouse Spa. There's a free seminar at 10 a.m. for detox for health and weight loss. It's pretty interesting. And at noon today, there's another free seminar. This one's called Secrets to Flawless Skin, both in the Greenhouse Spa. Deck number nine, in front of the show. And last of all, there's a great seminar in the Ocean Bar today. It's all about Rembrandt and his famous etchings. It starts at... 1030 today. Very informative about the Remrack collection here on board the Saturday. You can come hear about the greatest etcher that ever lived and find out why the art world has been so obsessed with this copper plate, it's a story 300 years in the making. That starts at 1030 in the ocean bar on deck number three. That's all for me. Have a great day out there. Remember to take a look at your daily program that tells you every activity happening around the ship today. Have a wonderful day everyone and we'll see you around the Saturday. Bye for now.
2: Yeah. Um, Just a brief housekeeping announcement. We do seem to be settling down, but these are rough seas. Uh, And so just a reminder, I know Neil mentioned it probably when we first met. Um, This is the time to uh, go to the front desk. If you have the least suspicion that you're feeling uh, motion sickness, start to take the bonine or whatever they give you at the front desk. Before you're two motion sickness, when you first begin to suspect, gee, I wonder if you're starting to feel the effects, that's the time to take the medication. Number one. Number two, this is the day if you're feeling sensitive to emotion to moderate your diet and avoid rich foods, dairy products, alcohol, and things like that. And then number three is... Um, You'll see uh, bowls, probably, if this persists, of green apples around the ship where they may offer you ginger candy um, up in the Lido in the dining room. And this is a hint that uh, um, the rough seas will continue because those are things that have low doses of substances that tend to soothe the uh, motion sickness. So um, it does seem to be settling down, but I looked at the weather report out there. I've been watching it while Dr. Griffiths has been chatting. And um, it does seem like it will be persisting into the day. So just consider that as you all right okay. okay. great. Okay, so this is our problem, right? We've got this matrix. The question is how are we going to use this information?
0: That was M.D. Teresa Mazik talking about the rough seas. She and husband Neil Bauman run InSight Cruises. For more info on future Siam Cruises, just visit InSightCruises.com or look for their ads in Scientific American Magazine. We'll feature an interview with Tom Griffiths about his work on an upcoming podcast. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the most widely cited source of wireless usage info in the U.S. is the Centers for Disease Control. Story two, one of those CDC studies finds that California leads the nation in households, that have gone completely cellular and no longer have a landline. Story three, there's a link between cat poop and schizophrenia. And story four, lithium batteries that can recharge in just seconds are in sight. Time's Up. Story 4 is true. MIT researchers have come up with lithium batteries that may be able to recharge in just a few seconds. The report is in the latest issue of the journal Nature. The quick charge is related to the internal structure of the battery which takes advantage of clumps of nanoparticles. So in a couple of years you might be able to fully charge a portable device while brushing your teeth. For more, check out the March 11th article at Siam.com called A Better Battery? The Lithium ion Cell Gets Supercharged. Story three is true. Cat feces may be linked on rare occasions to schizophrenia, but more broadly to other common mental conditions. I'm talking about in the people who own the cats. Toxoplasmosis is transmitted via cat feces. In immune-suppressed people, the infection can change the brain's levels of dopamine, which means a link to Parkinson's, Tourette's, ADD, and bipolar disorders in addition to schizophrenia. The research was done at the University of Leeds in England. It's estimated that 22% of the U.S. adult population carries the toxoparasite. And story one is true. The CDC has the best records of cell phone use in the country because they do health surveys by randomly calling landlines. And they realized a few years back that a significant portion of the population was now off the landline grid. For more, check out the March 11th blog item on our website called U.S. Wireless-Only Use Rising, Complicating Government Health Surveying. All of which means that story, two about California leading the nation in cell phone-only households is totally bogus. Because a new study from the CDC finds that only 10% of California homes have given up landlines, Oklahoma and Utah lead the nation, with a quarter of homes having no landline. Vermont is still living in the 20th century, with only one home in 20 having gone wireless. And for good reason. I still can't get a Sprint signal at Ben & Jerry's in Waterbury. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out SIAM.com for the latest science news and our in-depth report on the Baby Nobels, the Intel science talent search for high schoolers. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.